Well, if you have your Bibles once more this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1050, Matthew chapter 21. If you're a guest, we've been working verse by verse through this section of Matthew's Gospel. And we've come to another passage that is probably familiar for many of us. And it's always the preacher's challenge to keep your attention when it comes to these passages. And so I want to encourage you this morning to keep your Bible open in front of you. I'm going to be continually calling you back to the text of Scripture and trust that God will speak to us through His Word this morning. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject fruitless. Matthew chapter 20, and we'll begin reading in verse 18, Matthew 21, excuse me, verse 18, and this is what the Word of God says. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Jesus' cleansing of the temple and his cursing of the fig tree were of special and monumental significance. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus confronted the hypocritical worship of Israel. The religious leaders had turned the temple from a house of prayer into a den of robbers. They had preyed on worshipers instead of feeding them. And they had obscured the purpose of the temple from the people, causing them to remain in spiritual darkness. In cursing the fig tree, Jesus confronted the spiritual barrenness of Israel. The nation had the appearance of life. But upon closer examination, Israel was fruitless. The cursing of the fig tree was a powerful display of God's judgment. Matthew records Jesus' cursing of the fig tree as an instantaneous event. While Mark describes the scene as taking place over a 24-hour period, Luke and John do not chronicle this event at all, but earlier in Jesus' ministry, Luke notes a parable regarding a barren fig tree that parallels this account. Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is also a warning to you and to me of how God views any religion or any religious activity that does not produce genuine spiritual fruit. As John A. Broadus, famous preacher, wrote, that withered fig tree stands as one of the most conspicuous objects in sacred history. It is an object lesson that lasts 
forever, end quote. And friends, it is apparent from this passage that God desires all of his people to bear spiritual fruit. That one of the clear evidences of a life that has been changed by the grace of God is a life that exhibits healthy spiritual fruit. Only a life that has never been transformed by the power of Christ will have the appearance of vitality and yet remain fruitless. Jesus' cursing of the fig tree has a message for all of us, and it should be pondered carefully. For our life is either bearing fruit or we are fruitless. J.C. Ryle stresses the importance of this message and this passage, saying this, quote, This is an incident almost without parallel in all our Lord's ministry. It is almost the only occasion on which we find him making one of his creatures suffer in order to teach a spiritual truth. There was a heart-searching lesson in that weathered fig tree. Listen carefully. It preaches a sermon we shall all do well to hear. And so with that in mind, would you look with me first of all at the parable in verses 18 and 19. Matthew says, In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. This was the morning after Jesus cleansed the temple. And Matthew says that Jesus and his disciples were returning from Bethany where they had lodged the night before to the city. And because Jesus in his incarnation had all the normal physical needs that are characteristic of human beings, Matthew says that he became hungry and that seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. Now it's important to understand in this parable the place of fig trees in the culture of that day. They were very common in Palestine and they were highly treasured. It was not uncommon for fig trees to grow to a height of 20 feet and equally as wide, making them an excellent shade tree. They were a favorite place for people to gather and visit together. And children, if you have the children's pages this morning, you'll see a picture of a fig tree on it, and you'll see a picture of figs so you can understand what we're talking about. And as an example of this cultural icon, John 1.48 says that when Jesus called Nathanael to leave everything and follow him, he was sitting under a fig tree when Jesus called him. Additionally, it is important to note that the fig tree was often used in the Old Testament as a symbol of God's covenant blessing upon his people. Before God's chosen people entered the promised land, God described the riches of the land that they would discover upon entry. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 8, this is what Moses writes. It'll be a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. And so the fig tree was a sign of God's blessing upon his people. 
through the prophet Zechariah, God promised his people that at the Messiah's second coming, they would sit under a fig tree with their neighbor. And this would be a sign of peace and prosperity that could only come from God at the end of time. And in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, this is what the prophet writes. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. A symbol of God's blessing. The prophet Micah's vision of the future blessing of the mountain of the Lord included the fig tree. And in Micah chapter 4 and verse 4, he writes, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The fig tree was a sign of God's blessings upon his people. It is also important to note that fig trees produce two crops throughout the year, early figs and late figs. And in March, they produced early figs. And these early figs were small, bitter, green buds. And in April, the green leaves would sprout on the trees. And in May, all of these early figs, these little bitter pieces, would fall to the ground and they would be replaced by the late figs, which were the prized fruit from the tree. Now, as we look at this parable, it is important to note the parallel account in Mark chapter 11, and I will be referring to it often, because Mark states in Mark eleven thirteen that it was not the season for figs. So when Jesus went to this fig tree looking for food, he did not expect to find figs. What he expected to find was the small, bitter buds known as early figs that sprout before the leaves come on the tree. He expected to find these early figs. But you'll notice in verses 18 and 19 that this fig tree was deceptive. It possessed all of the outward signs of life, but this tree was fruitless. And because the fig tree was barren, when it should have had those early figs on it, Jesus says to it in Matthew 18, May no fruit ever come from you again. And according to Mark eleven twenty one, 21, when Jesus made this statement to the fig tree, he was placing a curse, a divine curse upon this tree, and it pronounced and sealed the tree's doom. Matthew records in verses 18 and 19 that at the sound of Jesus' words, the tree withered at once. While Mark's account reveals that the withering was not evident until the next morning when Jesus and his disciples passed by it again and they saw that the fig tree had been withered away to its roots. Now notice how Matthew describes this curse. He says that it withered at once. Listen carefully to me, friends. You could translate it this way. It withered immediately. Just as at the sound of God, creation came into being when he spoke, 
so too when the Son of God spoke, immediately this curse fell upon this tree and it withered. It emphasizes, please don't miss this, it emphasizes the certainty and the suddenness with which God's judgment can fall upon those who lack true spiritual life. It can fall instantly. It can fall immediately. So in this parable, the fig tree represents spiritually dead Israel. The leaves of the fig tree picture Israel's outward religion. And the tree's lack of fruit pictures Israel's spiritual barrenness. Instead of a house of prayer, the temple had become a den of robbers. The leaders and the people drew near to God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Their worship was completely show, and it had no substance in it. It was hypocritical. Therefore, Jesus curses this fig tree. And his cursing of the fig tree is directly, it is directly connected to his cleansing of the temple. Just as Jesus condemned Israel's worship, he now condemns Israel. They are fruitless. They are barren. They are full of hypocrisy. And so we've seen how in the Old Testament, the fig tree can symbolize God's blessing. You can also see in the Old Testament how God compares Israel, his covenant people, to a fig tree or a vine. And the judgment on Israel, the judgment on God's people, is compared to its destruction. For instance, the prophet Jeremiah uses the image of the fig tree as a symbol for the sin of God's people. And in Jeremiah 8:13, this is what Jeremiah prophesies. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Did you hear it? No figs on the fig tree. The leaves are withered. It's spiritually barren. It's fruitless. And that was God's commentary on his people through his prophet. The prophet Micah lamented the ungodliness of his day, and he compared it also to a fruitless tree. And in Micah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, he says, Woe is me! For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Do you hear that? No first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. No figs on the tree, a sign of God's judgment upon his people. On the day before the prophet Ezekiel learned of the fall of the city of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, the Lord appeared to him. He explained to Ezekiel why this judgment was coming, and the explanation was in terms of God's people's spiritual barrenness and empty profession of their allegiance to God. 
And this is what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 30 to 32. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they're saying, let's get together, let's gather together and hear the word of the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, and their heart is set on their gain. Do you hear it? They're coming to the house of God to worship God and to hear the word of God. And they're eager to come. They want to come. They want to hear the word, but they have no desire in their heart to obey it. It's all for show. And in verse 32, Ezekiel says, And behold, You are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Do you know what Ezekiel's commentary was on the people? They were coming to be entertained. They were coming for the show. They had no desire in their heart or life to truly receive it and obey it and make changes in their life. And God's response to their spiritual barrenness and fruitlessness, judgment, withering at once. So friends, you can see clearly from the word of God that spiritual barrenness, please hear this, is always evidence of a life that is lost and apart from God. Spiritual barrenness is always an evidence of ungodliness. It is always an evidence of that. And the flip side of it is this. Fruitfulness is always evidence of salvation. And fruitfulness is always evidence of godliness. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that the fruit of one's life is always an indication of transformation. And thus it is an indication that a person has been saved and forgiven of their sins. Listen to Matthew chapter 7 verses 16 to 20. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? See, he's using figs. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Fruit is always a sign of spiritual life. Fruit is always a sign of salvation. Fruit is always a sign that a person is right with God 
through his son, Jesus Christ, in their relationship. In the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 8, Jesus teaches that the good soil is proved by the fact that it yields a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. In other words, when it's good soil, when salvation is taken root in a person's life, it always produces some form of a crop. And some people may bear more fruit than others, but every person that has ever been changed by Jesus Christ will bear some kind of fruit. And Jesus goes on in this parable of the soils to describe the person in whom the seed of God's word takes root and grows. And this is how he describes him in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and they understand it. He indeed bears fruit. Do you hear that? He bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold. In another case, 60. And in another, 30. Unlike the people of Ezekiel's day, Jesus says that a person who has good soil in their life, a person who's in a right relationship with God, they hear the word of God, they receive the word of God, they understand the word of God, and it translates into fruit in their life. After celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples and before his high priestly prayer, Jesus gave his disciples a picture of what a true follower of him looks like. And in John chapter 15 and verse 5, this is what Jesus says. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus says a true follower of his, one who knows Christ personally and intimately as their Savior, is a person who abides with Christ, who remains with Christ and fellowships with Christ and follows Christ and obeys Christ. He abides with him and Christ abides in him. There's union together. There's relationship together. And out of this relationship with Christ, this person who is abiding in Jesus, they bear much fruit. Their life is not spiritually barren or wasted. You can look at them and you can see fruit in their lives. You can look at them, if you will, in the context of this passage and see figs. They're bearing fruit. Now, friends, Jesus didn't curse this fig tree because he was upset at not being able to satisfy his hunger. That's what all of the liberal commentators say. That he got angry, he was ticked off, and he used his power because he couldn't get his hunger pains satisfied. This is the same Jesus who fasted in the wilderness. Could we keep that in mind? No. He cursed the fig tree to provide his disciples and us with an object lesson that we would never forget. And with this object lesson in mind, it is very easy to see the point of this parable. All parables have a point. And the point of this parable is simple. Like the leaves of the fig tree, Israel had all the outward signs of life 
But upon closer examination, like the barren fig tree, Israel had no spiritual life. Israel was fruitless. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has told a parable about a fig tree. He used an illustration of a barren fig tree in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. And in that parable, Jesus told of a man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Listen, and for three years he waited for that fig tree to produce fruit. But it remained barren. And so the landowner instructed the vine dresser to cut it down and to throw it away. But the vine dresser, Jesus says, pleaded with the man to let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And in this parable that is parallel to this parable in Matthew chapter 21, once again, the barren fig tree represents Israel's barrenness as Jesus found no spiritual life in it for the three years of his earthly ministry. And the landowner's willingness to wait for the tree to bear fruit, listen, it represents God's patience in mediating out judgment. He was patient with Israel for three years in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. But now, judgment has come. Jesus has cleansed the temple as a sign of judgment. Jesus has cursed the fig tree as a sign of judgment. I'll quote J.C. Ryle again. That fig tree, full of leaves but barren of fruit, was a striking emblem of the Jewish church when our Lord was upon the earth. The Jewish church had everything to make an outward show, yet it was utterly destitute of fruit. It had no grace, no faith, no love, no humility, no spirituality, no real holiness, no willingness to receive its Messiah. And hence, like the fig tree, the Jewish church was soon to wither away. It was to be stripped of all of its outward ornaments and its members scattered over the face of the earth. Jerusalem was to be destroyed. The temple was to be burned. The daily sacrifice was to be taken away. The tree was to wither away to the very ground. And so it came to pass. And when you study history, approximately 40 years after Jesus cursed this fig tree, the Romans entered Jerusalem and overrun it and destroyed the temple. And you see in this parable, friends, just as the fig tree was a symbol and a picture of God's blessing, it is also a symbol and a picture of God's judgment. So how are we to think about it? Well, application number one. Every church has the dangerous potential to become a withered fig tree. All you have to do is read and study Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to the seven churches, and you'll see this danger. And if that were not enough evidence for you, friend, would you drive around our city and as you drive around our city, you will see the outward evidence of prominent churches who once prospered, but now stand as historic relics, shells of their former days, because they've embraced relevance over righteousness, profession 
over possession, hubris over humility, homosexuality and homosexual elders over holiness, ritual instead of repentance, and finances instead of faith. And this parable serves as a sobering reminder that it is possible for a church to have leaves, for a church to have all the outward signs of life and vitality, and in the end, through the judgment of the Lord of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, be spiritually fruitless and barren, and therefore condemned and judged. It is highly possible for that to happen. That's why one commentator said, Matthew's church leaders need to take note for dead religion in Christian churches will fall under his judgment just as surely as Israel's failure evoked it. God is no more bound to Christian churches with a long pedigree than he was to Israel with an even longer one. If there is no fruit in prayerfulness, in evangelism, in love, in ministry to the community, God will judge such churches and they will die. End quote. And I say to you this morning, with all of the soberness in my heart, may we never, ever be a church that trusts in itself. May we never, ever be a church that wavers from the Word of God no matter what kind of persecution comes to our doors. May we always be a church that stands in humble dependence and devotion to God, trusting in Him and His sovereignty and His Word. And may we be a church that's spiritually alive and bearing fruit. Oh, friends, it's a sober reminder. It could happen to us. We're just one generation away from losing it. Application number two. Jesus' action against the fig tree is meant to shock us into sober thinking about the true condition of our lives. It's meant to make us appalled by our fruitless lives and to spur us to repentance and faith so that we wouldn't be numbered among the accursed on the last day. It is possible, just as it's possible for a church to be like this fig tree, it is possible for you and me to be like this fig tree. Listen, dear friend, it is possible to be a fruitless professor of Christianity. It is possible to have the leaves of religion on your life which produce no spiritual fruit. It is possible to claim Christ, but to have no change of heart, no change of life, no forsaking of sin, and no desire for holiness or for God or for His Word or for the things of His kingdom. And you must ask yourself this morning as you sit before this parable, are you in danger of having a life that is full of leaves, a life that appears to be healthy from a distance, but upon closer examination proves to be fruitless? You say to me, well, how do I know that, Pastor? Oh, it's simple. It's simple. The Word of God makes it so clear. You know that there's fruit in your life when the presence of the Holy Spirit is in your life. Because the presence of the Holy Spirit produces spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
And so the presence of the Spirit of God in your life and the presence of the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life is evidence that you have been changed. No change, no Christ. You can profess all you want. The question is, do you possess? Does the Spirit of God live inside of you? He who has the Spirit has life and fruit. And I want to remind you this morning that the barren fig tree in Luke's parable, if you remember it, it was given another year to bear fruit. And so, unbeliever, God is exercising patience towards you this very day. He has not rendered judgment on you yet. There is still time for you to confess your sin and your need for Christ and turn from your sin and trust in Christ to be your Savior. But I want to remind you this morning, unbeliever, God's patience will not last forever. One day judgment will come. And if you never repent of your sin, if you never turn to Christ and cast your complete life in dependence upon Him, you will be doomed for judgment Forever, forever, just as surely as he judged the fig tree, he will judge you. Application number three. Christian, would you remember this morning that the same power that withered the fig tree could have revived the fig tree? He could have caused that tree to bear fruit. And would you remember this morning that that is the same power that is at work in your life. That it is God's will and God's desire that you would abide with him. And that he would abide with you. That you would be friends with God. And that your life would bear much spiritual fruit. And so Christian, are you abiding in Christ? Are you growing in your love for Christ, your affection for Christ, your devotion for, your, for Christ? Are you growing in your love of His Word, your love of worship, your love for the things of His kingdom? Is your life producing fruit that reflects your relationship with Jesus? When we not only see the parable. Let me show you finally the principle in verses 20 and 22. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So you may be thinking like I was thinking, what does this have to do with the parable of the fig tree? Well, I think the key to understanding what Jesus is saying in these words at the end of the parable is what Jesus said in the previous passage in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 13. Because in that passage, he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus was describing for them what temple should have been like and what the worship of the people should have been like. And at the very heart of it was prayer and was communion with God. And now what is he teaching his disciples? He's teaching them about prayer. 
And the prayer that he is teaching them about is directly connected to the parable. So in verse 20, you'll notice the disciples' response to Jesus' cursing of the fig tree. They did not ask why he did it. They asked how he did it. Mark, in his account, says that when the disciples passed the cursed fig tree the next morning and they saw that it was withered away at its roots, Peter, surprise, surprise, was the first to speak. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Matthew says here in verse 20 that they all marveled at the sight. How, Jesus, how did you do that? Do you know what they were really asking? Jesus, we want to do that too. Can you teach us how to do that? We want to do that. The disciples knew why the fig tree withered. They couldn't understand how it withered so quickly. So what does Jesus do? He uses another object lesson of the fig tree, and he uses it to teach his disciples the principles of the power of faith, the power of prayer, and the will and word of God. So in Mark eleven twenty two, Mark records that after they asked Jesus how, Jesus simply responded to them, are you ready for it? Have faith in God. You want to know how this happened? Have faith in God. Then Mark and Jesus, uh, Mark says that Jesus proceeded to give the disciples a similar instruction as Matthew records here in verse 21, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Do you see in verse 21 what Jesus emphasizes? Three simple statements. If you have faith. And in the Gospel of Matthew, faith is always used to describe a person's relationship of trust with the one to whom they are praying to. The faith is never used to describe the quality of the one praying. It's the object of your faith. Where are you putting your faith? If you have faith, what is faith's object? James reinforces this truth by reminding us that the object of one's faith is the key to answered prayer. And he says in James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And James is saying the object of that prayer was selfish. It was your own passions, your own desire, your own will. And Jesus is teaching the disciples the exact opposite. If you have faith, if you have faith in God, that's the object of your faith. Notice secondly what he says. And do not doubt. And do not doubt. You have faith in the right object. And do not doubt. You have confidence in God. You believe that he can do what he says he can do. You believe he will do what he says he will do. And James helps us again on this in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He says that the person who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person shouldn't think they would receive anything from God. You have faith in the right object. You believe and have confidence and don't doubt. And then number three, I summarize it with this statement. You can read the full statement in verse 21. It will happen. 
It will happen. It speaks of answered prayer. Jesus was telling his disciples, I want you to know that you have unimaginable power available to you through your faith in me. If you sincerely believe without doubting, it will happen and you will see the power of God at work in your life. James Montgomery Boyce is really helpful on this. He says, it's not a promise about moving mountains. It's a figure of speech, meaning that seemingly impossible things are possible through the power of God. When the people of God take God at his word and pray in a believing way, and listen to how he ends it, it is an encouragement to pray often, to pray well, and to pray rightly. That's it. It's not about having faith to move mountains. It's about having faith in God to do the seemingly impossible in your life. Do you know what that means, friends? You are to pray. I am to pray audaciously, with boldness, with confidence, with courage. And we are to ask God for this seemingly impossible. And Jesus summarizes it all in verse 22. Do you see it? Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now listen to me. Listen carefully to me. Jesus is not teaching you the prosperity gospel. Jesus is not teaching you, you can name whatever you want to name, and you can claim it, and because you've named it and you've claimed it, God has to come through for you. That is not what he is teaching you. What he is teaching you about prayer in these verses is consistent with the other things that he has taught you about prayer in the rest of the gospels. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that persistent prayer, prayer that believes, is the prayer that moves mountains. And he says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Persistent prayer. You continue to ask. You continue to seek. You continue to knock for God to do the seemingly impossible in your life and in the life of those that you are praying for. That's what he's teaching. In response to the disciples' question to Jesus concerning their inability to cast out a demon, Jesus rebuked them for having small faith that stayed small, and he exhorted them to have a faith that, though it begins small, continues to grow. And he says in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20, Because of your little faith, you couldn't cast this demon. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And the point of the mustard seed is not its smallness, but that it grows. That you grow in your faith. What did Jesus say? If you have faith, if you have confidence in him and don't doubt, in the context of his teaching on church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says that when believers ask something that is consistent with God's word and God's will and they trust in God's power to answer it, it will be accomplished. He says in Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, 
there I am among them. And just before his arrest, he taught his disciples that the prerequisite to answered prayer is not faith in one's desires, dreams, or will, but faith in him and asking and praying in his name according to the will of God and the purpose of God. And he says in John 14, 13, and 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Friends, in essence, Jesus is teaching us to pray persistently and not give up. He is teaching us to pray according to his will and according to his word. He is teaching us to pray with his kingdom purposes in view. And he is teaching us to pray with faith, with confidence, and with expectation that God will hear and answer our prayers and that God will be glorified in and through his Son. Do you know what he's teaching? Oh, don't miss this. I missed it. I didn't see it till the end of my study on Friday afternoon. This is what he's teaching you in this passage. You listen to it and you tell me if it doesn't ring parallel. Here's how he's teaching you to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what he's teaching. He's teaching you how he taught his disciples to pray. The word of God, the will of God, the purpose of God. Asking boldly in the name of God. And in the context of this passage, oh, don't miss this. This is what makes the passage so rich. Why is he teaching prayer in the context of this sobering parable? Because prayer is the vehicle to do the seemingly impossible in dead religion. Prayer is, can, is what can change spiritual Barrenness. Prayer is the vehicle that God can use to bring spiritual life. And so that lost spouse that you've been praying for and you're discouraged because you see no movement, you keep asking, you keep knocking, you keep praying. You pray in Jesus' name. You believe. You have confidence. You pray according to his word and his will that God would do the seemingly impossible in that spouse's heart and life. That broken relationship, that problem, you can insert all of it in the context of what he is teaching you about prayer. And he can do the seemingly impossible in deadness. John, 60 years after Jesus taught him about prayer, summed it all up in 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. R.C. Sproul said, Christ wants his people to be so confident in God's power that they pray for marvelous things to happen. And he promises that when they pray in this way, marvelous things will happen.
pray in faith. Another commentator said, the believer who wants what God wants can ask from God and receive it. The Christian young person who truly wants what God wants for his life will have it. The woman who truly wants what God wants for her family will have it. The pastor who truly wants what God wants for his ministry will have it. Prayer of faith. So Christian, can I ask you this morning, do you have this kind of confidence in your God? Do you believe in his omnipotent power and that his omnipotent power is at work in your life and on your behalf? And if you believe that, could I be so bold this morning to ask you if you're praying audaciously or if you're praying weak, flimsy prayers? Christian, are you full of doubts? Doubts that God loves you? Doubts that he hears your prayers? Doubts that he could do what you're asking of him? Doubts that he could move the mountains of dead religion in the lives of those you are praying for? Doubts that he could do a work in your life about your future, about a future made, about a future job? Are you full of doubts this morning? Have the doubts swarmed over your hope and your confidence in the power of God? Christian, could it be the reason your spiritual life seems so weak is because you're not persistent in prayer, that you're too easily discouraged, you're too easily distracted in your communion with the triune God? Can't you see from this text that God blesses persistent prayer? Christian, do you believe that promise? Are you persisting in prayer or have you already given up? And non-Christian, I say to you finally this morning, do you realize that according to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 29, that your sin separates you from God, and because your sin separates you from God, he does not hear any of your prayers? That the only prayer God will hear while you in, are in your sins is a prayer of confession for your sin, a prayer of repentance for your sin and a prayer of crying out to Jesus Christ in his mercy and grace to save you. And so I say to you, unchristian, non-believer, barren, fruitless person, would you cry out to Christ today and ask him to save you and forgive you of your sins? He is the God who is mighty to save. This passage is poignant. This passage is powerful. This passage is sobering for Christian and non-Christian alike. And here's the reality of this passage, friends. Our lives are either bearing fruit or they are fruitless. And it is clear that God desires for those who know him to bear fruit. And it is also clear that one of the signs and evidences that you do not know God through his son, Jesus Christ, is that your life remains fruitless. You have the appearance of vitality, but there is no spiritual life. Jesus' cursing of the fig tree has a message for every single one of us. And it is a message that demands to be pondered carefully. Let's pray.